0: Him.
1: <laughs> like For those it's who are uh, listening yeah, the, on the podcast, <laughs> Marty is just yeah. putting up his two fingers and and showing. <laughs> well, hang on a minute, that didn't sound very good. He's putting up his two fingers.
0: Uh, they're interlocked with each other. they interlocked the, with each.
1: Thank you. Yeah, he wasn't flipping me the bird.
0: The llama and I, big big old buddies. We, yeah. We've been hanging together. This is
1: Ash Roy, the founder of ProductiveInsights.com and the host of the Productive Insights podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Productive Insights podcast editing service, which takes away all the pain of podcast editing. All you've got to do is upload your file onto Dropbox and we'll take care of publishing it onto your WordPress site and onto iTunes. Book a call with me on callashroy.com to find out how to get started. Now, just a quick reminder, if you don't currently get my free email newsletter, you should go to productiveinsights.com right now and sign up for my newsletter. You'll receive valuable tips that will help you to build your authority and create a valuable business brand. You'll also receive regular podcast updates delivered right to your inbox, and you'll never miss another episode. Now this is episode 136 which is part one of a two-part series with a guest that we've previously had on this podcast and we're going to be talking about using humor in public speaking. This guest has had the honor of almost sharing the stage with the Dalai Lama, and you'll find out more about that in this episode. But You can head over to ProductiveInsights.com forward slash 136 to access the show notes, where we talk about related episodes that you might find useful if you like this one. And with most of our episodes, we actually include timestamps in the show notes so that you can use those timestamps in the show notes as a guide to jump to the relevant bits that you find interesting by just looking at the contents. And most of the recent episodes, you can even download a PDF version of the show notes. I also just want to say a thank you to all the listeners who have been sharing this content with others and commenting on social media. I really appreciate your support in getting this content out there to more people who will benefit from it. If you find the content shareable, please do continue sharing it. Thanks again. Now, in the first part of this two-part series, we talk about how our guest almost shared the stage with the Dalai Lama, how to use humor as a tool to build a bond with your audience and break the ice quickly, particularly when you're doing public speaking. And we talk about how to develop one of the most important skills around humour, and that is timing. Thanks for listening and on with the show. Welcome everyone. Today I'm delighted to welcome a guest who I've previously featured on this Productive Insights podcast in episode 89. He's a pharmacist turned award-winning advertising copywriter turned stand-up comedian turned best-selling author and speaker. That's a lot of turns. He's spoken (laughs) to over 500,000 people since he first leapt up on stage in 1997. In his first 12 months, he won Australian Comic of the Year, appeared on The Footy Show, and was invited to the UK to become a full-time stand-up. His keynotes and workshops are packed with scientific knowledge, takeaway tips and strategies, and most importantly, wrapped up in countless hilarious stories. He's recently been invited to share the stage with Dalai Lama, and he almost did, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. So (laughs) I'm delighted to welcome back Marty Wilson from morefunnymoremoney.com. Welcome, Marty.
0: Hi, Ash. Thanks for having me, mate. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure.
1: It's great to have you back. So let's start there, Mari. Tell us all about this thing. You were invited to share the stage with the Lama, and then you ended up almost sharing the stage with him, but not quite.
0: <laughs> yeah, the way I say, I, I he shared the stage with with the wonderful Dalai Lama. He, uh, I did an event. I was delightfully, I was invited to be on. I, I spoke on day one and I yeah. emceed day two of the Happiness and Its Causes Conference here in Australia, in Sydney. And the Dalai Lama was booked in and I was getting ridiculously excited because it was himself. It was sent um, Csikszentmihalyi, the guy who invented oh, yes. the term flow. In the flow, yep. yep. Uh, and Matthew Ricard, the guy they call the happiest The man. happiest man in the world. Yeah, the happiest man in the world. And they were all going to, I was going to meet them all on the same day. Yeah. and then it turns out I didn't realize that mihai is actually 84 now so wow. he he recorded something um for the conference I was like oh when well, I heard about that <laughs> and then on the on, on the day I found out that uh, the Dalai Lama sadly he'd been quite ill he'd um, had some medical treatment back in his home in Dharamsala and so he had to skype in uh, his his uh, talk so like you know technically I can say I shared the stage or he shared the stage with the Dalai Lama, but I was just you know thrilled to be asked to sure. this event that happens in Sydney every year right and there's about sort of 1500 people uh, go along wow. to it. So it was ju- just lovely to be asked, you know.
1: That was at the Darling Harbour Convention Centre?
0: The new ICC down in Darling Harbour, yes. But
1: see, that's the thing. I mean, you were invited to share this stage, which to me is a big honour. I've read a lot of the Lama's books. I, I particularly loved his book, Ethics for a New Millennium. I think it was yes. published under a different title in some other countries, but it was so simple and so beautiful and so moving. And it was one of the things that really led me on my path into mindfulness, which still remains a very important part of my life and my approaches to productivity, which is something else I talk about in other episodes. So congratulations on being invited as a guest.
0: That was actually the first book of his that I read too. I I think I, I bought it in Britain when I was living there.
1: That's it. I was in the UK too at the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. most, a lot of places, I think it was published as like, Ancient wisdom, modern world, That's or something it. like that. I, I think it was published. That's, yeah, it. Yeah. That's
1: another name for it. Yes.
0: But it, and and it's one of those great things, great introductions to those who are you know listening, who are flirting with the idea of looking into Buddhism and mindfulness and things like that, because it's presented very much as a philosophy rather yes. than a religion. Yes. And you're just reading it, you're just going, "Well, oh, you can't argue with that. You can't right. argue with that." Like, yeah, right. it's, it's just so self-evident, so simple.
1: As it happens, I mean, while I'm not a practicing Buddhist or Hindu or anything, and I don't endorse any particular religion on this podcast. I was born into a Hindu family. And interestingly, Buddhism is considered by some to be an offshoot of Hinduism. Hinduism used to be called Sanatana Dharma, which means, I believe, some translation, some version of a way of life. It was never meant to be a religion. And That is something I really like about the Buddhist approach. It's very much built out of a philosophy rather than necessarily a dogmatic belief system that you must do things in one way or another. Sure, there are people who have quite dogmatic interpretations of it, even in Buddhism, but I really like the fact that it can be consumed on a very individual basis and it's very all-embracing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then the thing about what we're talking about today, the Dalai Lama has, I think, one of the top five best laughs in the world. Like, (laughs) he (laughs) he just... giggles all the time and yeah. he has this totally infectious beautiful giggly attitude to life that um, is such a great illustration of how humor works so well you know, he, he just says these things and half the time he says these things you don't know if he's being deliberately inappropriate or yeah. you know deliberately off center or something and and then he starts giggling and the whole crowd gets it you know 1500 people laughing at once it was just lovely to be in the audience listening to him
1: Right. He's got this mirthful laugh, doesn't he? Like almost like a child.
0: Yes. Yeah. 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 It's a real uh, chuckle probably would be the way you like, like uh, uh, a real one of those sort of uncles that sits in the corner and the whole family gathering (laughs) uh, ends up being around him because uh, he's just so engaging to listen to, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. so. Let's talk about giggling and humor and how we can get our listeners to help other people giggle, which I think is one of the best things you can do with your life. So, in our last conversation, you explained how humor can be a very powerful tool, especially in breaking the ice and bonding quickly with your audience. And we spoke particularly in the context of public speaking last time. I yeah. agree that it's very important establishing a connection, and I've used it through most of my life with varying degrees of success. Now, in today's world, people have- <laughs>
0: <laughs> with, with varying degrees of success. I like that. Thank you for the, thank you for the honesty, actually. That's great.
1: Right. You're welcome. Now, in today's world, we have increasingly limited attention spans, what with all these mobile devices and all that sort of stuff. So can you talk to us, if possible, with a couple of examples about how you can use humor to break the ice and maybe talk about a couple of things you did in your gig with the Dalai Lama where you emceed the event and, you know, how you used humour to break the ice.
0: Sure. I mean, like yeah, with the Dalai Lama, like meet him, like this, meet him, like, like this. <laughs> For those it's who are a, listening uh, yeah, on the uh, podcast,
1: Marty is just yeah. putting up his two fingers and, and showing <laughs> – well, hang on a minute. That didn't sound very good. He's putting up his two fingers.
0: Uh, they interlocked with each other. They the, interlocked the, with each Thank
1: you. Yeah, he wasn't flipping
0: me the bird. The Lama and I, big, big old buddies. We, yeah. We've been hanging together happiness the its <laughs> causes. Yeah, no. I, I guess in hindsight, looking back on it, I, I learned about the bonding power of humour at a really young age. I, I remember a really specific incident when I was—I I, can't—I was in primary school, so I, you know, year six must be the the highest I was. And I was off sick, and everyone else was at school. In my family, mum was out doing something, dad was at work, and I was at home lying on one of those fold out. Um, Beds with the like, you know, two-inch mattress sort of thing that were very big in the seventies and eighties. Everyone had for their spare bed in their house, and just in in the the TV room downstairs at the house I grew up in. And I remember I felt very, very ill, and I remember I also felt very, very lonely because I was at home on my own. Right. And I I could remember really clearly longing for six p.m. to come around because that was the time every night when the goodies came on the TV, a British comedy.
1: Oh yes, I remember that
0: series called. Called the goodies, and every night at, on the ABC, because I grew up in Newcastle, and we only had Channel Three and the ABC was all we had. There was the, that's all they had, and um, every night it was the goodies at six and Doctor Who at half past six. And so, right. uh, but the thing about it was, I remember longing for that feeling you get when all the people you love are in a room, all laughing at the same thing at once. Yeah, just that feeling of feeling of togetherness that laughing at the same thing brings. And so it's it's lovely yeah. that the the circle has completed, and I'm now. Teaching people to use that mm-hmm. uh, because you know we we are the more anthropologists are looking into uh, the way humans evolved into tribes and that sort of thing. We're very social animals, mm-hmm. and if you can deliberately make a room laugh, yeah, e- even if even if only half the room laughs, just the sound of a room laughing drops all the social pretences in the room, and everybody feels as one. Uh, and the studies have shown that even if only a third of the room laughs, everyone still feels we're all in this together.
1: So I want to just dig into that a bit, Marty. Sorry to interrupt you, but what is it about humor and music? These are the two things that seem to really, you know, unite humans like nothing else does. What is it about those two things?
0: I mean, there are physical processes that go on inside our brain that when, because If you are at a point when you are laughing, then, you know, like I was saying, we, you know, we evolved 10, 20,000 years ago where I think we we might've talked about it out this last time, that the brain separates everyone into them and us, and and there's only room for about 200 us. But if I can get you laughing at the same thing as me, and I think I mentioned last time like a common frustration, a shared enemy, um, something that we both believe the same things about, then your brain stops seeing me like this, and it's like we're both standing arm in arm looking at the same thing together over there. Right. And there are neurochemicals released in our brains in that process that Makes oxytocin is released and makes you and I bond. And, and because if we are laughing together, you think back 10, 20,000 years ago, we must be in a situation that is safe. Comes back to the tribal thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It makes us all feel safe. And this person cares about me enough to protect me, which is what I went back to 10, 20,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have things in common. Therefore, I can drop my guard and, and be open with this person. And so, being able to deliberately do that is such a powerful gift when it comes to influencing people. And uh, and, gather- and and I don't mean in a manip- manipulative no. type of way, you know, like, like anything, these tools can be used for good or evil. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but, but um, yet being able to deliberately do this, particularly at the start of a presentation or a speech or something, is, is such a powerful way to get everyone in the room to think, you know. Yeah, all right. I'll listen to this guy. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I'll, I'll give this guy the time of day, you know, like just um, by very quickly getting them to laugh, particularly if it is that shared frustration, common enemy, or get them to laugh at yourself, get them to laugh at me.
1: Yes. And even if you don't end up being one of those people that laugh, if you're not in the 50% of the audience that laughs, you still are seeing social proof because the other 50% of the room has laughed and there is an endorsement for your humour or at least for you as a person.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that's really important sometimes a, uh, a comedian called Tommy Dean, when I first started doing comedy, it's actually 20 years ago now, he he had a chat to me one night uh, after a gig at the Harold Park Hotel, and, and he, he's an American guy, and he had this lovely sort of Midwestern drawl. and he says, you know, sometimes, Marty, you have to hear the smiles, you know, because they're out there in the dark. <laughs> you just got to hear the smiles. They're smiling with you, but they're just not a laughing crowd. They're a smiling oh. crowd. But the effect of them, you know, coming to like you is still there, yeah. because- if a, th- a third of the room is laughing, the others are just smiling, but that's okay. And you have to be, o- you have to be okay with that just being okay.
1: Cool. Sorry, I interrupted you when you were talking earlier. So what devices did you use in the thing with the Lama where you were able to break the ice? Can you give us some examples?
0: Well, I, I, one of the the stories. I mean, I, I'm very big on stories. I think we mentioned mm-hmm. this yes. but, because they are stories that you tell socially anyway, so yes. that you can um, and we'll. we'll probably get onto this again a bit later because I'm such a mass- massive fan of it so that one of the stories that I tell at the start of, of my keynote is where I ask the crowd um, you know who who in the room has a kid any kids remember in your first because I, I talk about change and resilience as well so that's what I was, I was talking about the importance of humor in building resilience at the, the Happiness and Causes Conference. So I said, who's got kids? Leave your hand up if when you had your first child, you had a birthing plan. Now leave your hand up. And, you know, probably about a third of the room put their hand up. Now leave your hand up if your birth went exactly like your birthing plan. And there's about <laughs> three people. Three people left their hand up. And then I, I made the point that, you know, that's a great metaphor for life because, you know, yeah. life just never works out as your plan. You yeah. know, the." And then I told this story and I I tell this story about uh, like my wife's a nurse and so uh, accident emergency nurse. So her birthing plan was no doctors, no doctors, no medical intervention. Right. And so, uh, and so we were booked into like the midwife-led unit next to the hospital with the birthing pool and there were dream catchers up on the wall and she'd been doing the meditation for birthing and there were like electric candles so the gas wouldn't explode and all this <laughs> sort of thing. And and um, <clears throat> so we turn up at the hospital. We have enough food to last three days and enough Enya to last a week, you know, because my wife just loves Enya, and I, oh, I hate Enya. You know, but, you know, she's my wife. I love my wife. It's totally yeah. her show. I'm not, not an idiot. I, I, right. um, you know, let's bring those 37 Enya CDs, my darling, no problem at all. <laughs> And so we get to the hospital and, sadly, undiagnosed breech baby. So the baby is the right way up instead of upside down. And so, you know, within 40 minutes getting to the hospital, my wife, Ali, is numb from the chest down and the surgeon's about to open her up and do an emergency seizure. And, and, you know, it was quite obviously uh, the place... The, the way to go. But um, I think the anesthetist could tell that my wife was quite upset by this because, you know, we were expecting to go over here and although it's un- total 180 degrees and we're in the operating theatre, she's numb from the chest down and the surgeon's about to open her up. And the anesthetist leans down and whispers into my wife's ear and said, oh, Mrs. Wilson, would you like me to turn the radio on? Would you like some music during the procedure? Mm-hmm. And my wife just looks up at me with this angelic, earnest look in her eyes and just said, wouldn't it be a sign if Enya came on the radio? and and a, <laughs> You know, and again, like I'm not an idiot, so I look down to my wife and say, yes, darling, it would. (laughs) And so my wife was hoping for a bit of this. I knew you were going to ask me this question, so I've queued up a bit of music. My wife was hoping for a bit of this. I'm just putting so the microphones near the computer, so a bit of Enya. And this song, at this point in the song, is what came out of the stereo. (laughs) (laughs) The first Cut is the Deepest by Rod Stewart came out of the stereo. (laughs) And so, you know, that, that moment there when everyone is laughing at us, you know, trying to enforce our will on the world and just having to, you know, I make the point that like, that's such a great metaphor for life. You know, you're going right. on, you have all these plans, you prepare for things, these big moments and you want it all to go perfectly. And then life comes along and just sideswipes swipes you right. and you just have to prepare for that. And so, because I, I was on at 10 to five in the afternoon of this conference. Hmm. And so 1500 people had been, you know, sitting absorbing all this like the longest speech was about 20 minutes and so everyone is absorbing all this stuff it's one of those conferences where you think a lot all day and so everybody's prefrontal cortex is just burnt out by the end of the day so when I came on and you know started that story and then like you know um making fun of my wife a little bit making fun of me a little bit and you know making fun us being the butt of the joke then you could just see the crowd just like a Oh, oh, this is going to be okay. Like, you know, some blessed relief from, because a lot of the people on there, like very, very accomplished people, great psychologists doing wonderful um research and, and most of them pretty good speakers too, has to be said, but, but just really intense thinking for the day. So if you can be... Using a bit of humor at the start, particularly a story that you know how to tell really well and a story where I'm the butt of the joke yes. that it, like all of a sudden all the crowd just like, this guy's wonderful. Tell us tell us what you want us to know. yeah you know, like, and, and, and it's such a an easy and foolproof way yes. to get to stand out from everybody else on on the bill and get them to really listen to your message. I think we mentioned last time that the, the quote from the author Jeffrey Gittimer where like the end of laughter is the beginning of listening. Yes. In that magic moment after you've made, you know, 1300 people laugh, everyone is just hanging on like, "I'm going to trust this guy. This guy knows stuff. Tell us, tell us what you want us to know." Like, right, right.
1: You know, I was going to ask this question a little bit later on, but I think it this is a great segue to ask it now, so I will. Before our conversation, I did a little bit of research on humorous devices and Mm-hmm. You know some of them are things like absurdity, exaggeration, irony, parody, sarcasm, satire, and so on and I have always been a student of humor. I love humor i've used it a lot mm-hmm. to bring resolution and closure on various things that I've gone through in my life. Some of them were pretty unpleasant and this was a great example of irony to me, or at least you know a parody where you know <laughs> she wants Enya to come on and The song that Mm. comes on is the first cut is the deepest. So I think that's a great tool. But the biggest tool, from my understanding anyway, is timing. People always say to be good at humor, you have to have timing. So can you talk to us a little bit about timing and how do you develop a good sense of timing with humor and what can our listeners do to hone this timing muscle, as it were, so they can develop their own humorous Devices in their speech.
0: Yeah, sure. Timing, you know, timing is incredibly important. Like, you know, ask me. You know, uh, what's the most important thing about comedy?
1: What's the most important thing
0: about comedy? Timing.
1: <laughs> gotcha.
0: <laughs> Oldest joke in the world. Oldest joke in the world. Right, you still, right. you still got
1: actually haven't heard it before, but that's great. I oh, see really? what you, I've seen. We'll see <laughs> what you did
0: there. Yeah. <laughs> Like that's an old. I um, uh, used to be on Hey Hey it's Saturday and everything. You know, many, many, many years ago.
1: And but that surprise right there, right? That device you used just there. You did use timing, but you also use surprise. Where I am not anticipating the response to come back that quickly, and you've cut in at the end of the question with the answer, and I am going like, whoa! And that recognition and that that surprise. That's the humorous device.
0: Yeah, yeah. The the humor comes in that when you realise that. The way that I answered your question actually shows me stuffing up what the thing is, and your brain you know it 's like there are three types of people in the world those that are good at mathematics and those that aren 't
1: right right i see yeah
0: <laughs> they quite often one of the one of the theories of humor is that. There's always two stories going on, two stories going on in parallel. You think this is what's happening. Yes. But what is really happening is this. And when, you, when your brain makes that leap down to what the other story is, what's really happening, yes. that's when your brain goes, ha <laughs> ha. Right,
1: right. And, and uh, so timing is then very intricately related to the surprise or the asynchronicity of what you expect and what actually happens. Is that correct?
0: Yes, it has. You know, you have to give the audience enough time—a couple of beats of time—for their brains to go down this path long enough. Yes. So that it is, a, you have to give them enough information and enough time to assume that things are going to go this way, and then so when you come in and, and show them this way, yes, then that's what's really happening, and that's that's where the surprise comes from. So, and th- and that's where the humour comes from.
1: You know what's really interesting. I read this book called Mate to Stick by Dan and Chip Heath. And in that book, they talk about something very similar, except they use it in the context of engaging people. Apparently, when we are listening, we are continuously, subconsciously trying to close the loop. And this is an example of creating or preempting the loop, as it were. And then you interrupt, you pattern interrupt with something unexpected. And that kind of creates this humor or this relief in some sense.
0: Yeah, no, you deliberately mislead people and then... Uncover what the real truth is behind that. And I've read uh, Major Stick myself, and, and they talk about using schemas to get your message across more quickly and that sort of thing. And that's what schemas for the listeners is. If In the book, I think they use the example of describe what a pomelo is. Mm-hmm. And a pomelo, you could say it is about a six inch across citrus fruit that is a little bit not quite as sour as a grapefruit or, you know, and and then, so you can go, they have this massive long description in the book, or you can just say, it's an oversized grapefruit. And then everyone goes, all oh, right, okay, fine. <laughs> and so, you know, and I think they use the examples of um, when they were pitching the movie Alien, they said, yes. it's Jaws in Space. That's right. And everyone goes, all oh, right, I get it.
1: I remember that because it's shorthand, right? It's You already have certain preconceived notions of certain ideas, and rather than explain the whole thing... As you said, Jaws in space, most people know what Jaws is. And if you say Jaws in space, it just explains the thing in shorthand.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so that that's what a lot of comedy does, you know, like a lot of magic where it misdirects you, it makes you think that you're going along this path. And all of a sudden, when you jump down to this path, particularly the really great comedians, if when you jump down to this path, that is like the, ask me what's the most important thing about comedy timing. When you jump down to this path, you actually... Reinforced the lesson that I'm trying to teach you at the same time. Yes. But also, like when you jump down to this path, if what's really happening is, you know, there's a lot of political humor about uh, Donald Trump in the world at the moment. Like if if it's the real truth underlying that, which is what a lot of great cartoonists do. You know, um, what's the name? Kathy Wilcox in the City Morning Herald, and a lot of the really great cartoonists. You you laugh at something and. It's making that intellectual leap starts the laughter off. But when when that leap takes you to, oh, that's a really insightful point about mm. what's really happening in this situation, then it elevates it to a whole nother level.
1: You know, I've always believed that stand-up comedians have unusually high IQs and are unusually intelligent people.
0: That's absolutely right, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and, and
1: I think partly because they have such deep insights into... Life and politics in general. Well, a lot of the humour is around politics, but it doesn't have to be about politics. It's just that they are able to hit home with these deeper insights and bring out these deeper levels of understanding, these aha moments. And I think that is an important part of comedy. It's not just about being funny; it's about bringing realization or bringing a new level of awareness to a situation.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I agree. I, I think. It's hard to say which comes first, whether, you know, I've always been someone who overthinks life and and, you know, examines and cross examines how things work and how things don't work and why things work and why my life is like this and why it isn't, whether that came first or the fact that when you're a full-time professional stand-up comic, you have a lot of spare time on your hands. <laughs> and so, you know, you have time to think about things that other people just don't have time to do. Like a, a really good friend of mine, Greg Burns, I hope he forgives me doing doing his joke on a, a podcast. He uh, does uh, the morning shift on Nova here in Sydney. He's an English guy, but he's moved out. Mm-hmm. And he used to have a, a joke when we did the Edinburgh Festival together. He used to have a joke that, um, you know, my wife is a, a nurse, so she gets up about 6, 6.30. You know, I'm a stand-up comic, so I get up about Thursday. (laughs) Uh, And and so, you know, we have a lot more spare time in our hands. I mean, not so much now that I'm doing speaking and that sort of thing, but you, you do have a lot of spare time to just read the paper and think about it and examine it and try and turn it into humor.
1: So how do our listeners develop these comedy muscles? How do they develop the ability to convert a relatively blasé conversation into something a little bit more entertaining. Not everyone has to be a stand-up comedian, but all of us, in my opinion, should have access to humor. So how do they do that?
0: I guess it's as, as trite and as simple and as complex as the answer to, you know, how do I get better at table tennis? Become a student of table tennis, mm. watch the best players of table tennis in the world read some books on how on strategy and tactics for table tennis and keep playing lots and lots of table tennis you know yes. it um it really is as simple as that but i guess the great thing about that is watching lots of stand up comics on netflix is quite enjoyable oh yes you know getting on my my i got three boys 13 10 and 5 and they're all into modern family the mm. the eight series of modern family at the moment and it is if you if you're looking to learn how to construct jokes and uh, do that misdirection and that sort of stuff. That show, uh, even just um, the quality of the economy of writing Mm. in that show is absolutely brilliant Mm -hmm. in terms of there just isn't a word wasted. Like every word is either a setup for some joke later on Mm. or it's a punchline or something like that. It's just a brilliantly crafted show. So if you want to watch – some TV and use it to learn how to write jokes that that's a great way to do it. Okay. But I guess it, it really is, you know, there's lots of um you yeah. know, we'll, we'll publicize my stuff at the end of this, but there are people who there's YouTube videos out there of people teaching you how to write jokes, you know, how to tell better even just how to tell better stories. Yes. Because you know the the thing about the story I told about my wife in the delivery suite or something like that, one of the things I teach in, in my more funny, more money stuff is be like James Bond. You know, James Bond never saves his local shopping center or, you know, his, his, <laughs> his, lo- his local street. He always saves the whole world, yes,
1: That's it. <laughs> you know, and
0: then, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 was saving all of creation, the whole galaxy, you know, and Doctor Who, it's always about, you know, reality as we know it yes. has been saved. You know, the universe could invert and swallow itself and all and all this sort of stuff. It seems like every episode is about that and you have to up the stakes. And so so, you know, if you go back and have a listen to the story I told about my wife being in the delivery suite, her expectations, what she wanted was really specific and quite obviously really important to her. Mm. And so when that makes the fall, when she comes down to, you know, she wanted this peaceful Enya stuff up here, mm. you know, the the meditation for birthing that Bream catches on the wall, it paints a picture of how she wanted things to go. And so- when the fall comes down to the first cut is the deepest, there's much more comedy if the fall is bigger than when then she went to the hospital and, you know, she didn't really mind what happened. We just went to the hospital, you know, undiagnosed breach baby had had to have a Caesar. Not even just the word emergency Caesar adds the emotional intensity of it. Yep. And so and then it still would have been funny when the first cut is the deepest came out, but it wouldn't have been quite as funny if we hadn't built up the tension, built up the tension, built up the tension. Yes. So, and the same thing goes for, uh, uh, you know, that's why James Bond saves the whole world when the fall is greater in sad movies as well. You know, like the the um, it's a beautiful life, you know, beautiful life, the the movie about um, the guy um, surviving with his son through the concentration camps in, in World War Two. You know the allies are coming. Yes. And you know, you know they're going to be released the neck any minute now. Yes. And he like the last night before that, he gets taken the, the father gets taken away and ends up dying just before his release and that makes it so much sadder. Yes. So building up the tension in your stories is a great way for them to get a much bigger laugh when you pull out the punchline at the end.
1: Okay, so that was the end of the first part of this two part conversation with Marty Wilson. Now, just a quick point, I just want to mention that that particular story that Marty Wilson is talking about didn't really end with a laugh. It was actually really sad. But I think the point that Marty was trying to make was that building that creative tension is a powerful device, whether it is used in storytelling or in humor. The idea is to create a crescendo which either ends with a punchline or a dramatic close. I think the point he was trying to make was that That build-up is the critical element. Now, in part two of this two-part series, we'll pick up from this story again. We'll continue the conversation, and then we'll go into challenges to implementing some of these principles we've discussed, and then action steps. You'll be able to access part two at ProductiveInsights.com forward slash 137. And you can access the show notes for this episode at ProductiveInsights.com forward slash 136. See you in part two.
0: Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today?